Well, in my last sermon, for those of you who weren't here, I discussed the need for modern Christians to view Israel from a Christian perspective rather than a purely Jewish one. And I emphasize that according to the New Testament, being a true child of Abraham, being a true Jew, is not based on ethnic descent, but on faith in Jesus Christ alone. That is the basis on which we can rightly say we are true children of Abraham or a true Jew. And I argued that Christians should not blindly support modern Israel as a state just based upon traditional Jewish interpretations, but should seek a Christ-centered understanding of the relationship between Israel and Christianity. That is not to say that there are no reasons to support Israel and what they might be going through. But based on traditional Jewish interpretations, we can't say that uh, this is the biblical reason that we must support. That, that's the question that we really need to answer. Do we have to because the Bible says? So I ended by referencing historical events uh, like the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, which is a monumental event in Jewish and Christian history. If you're unfamiliar with that event, uh, I encourage you to go back and listen to the sermon, listen to some of the sources that I cited. Eusebius, Josephus, some of the early uh, historians of the church and of Judaism, they recount some really important things that many Christians and Jews alike don't even know about. But uh, I went back to 70 AD to illustrate how early Christians actually set a precedent by distancing themselves from Jewish conflicts. When Rome came in to attack Jerusalem, the Christians actually fled to the mountains. But I concluded my sermon with a call for, to, to prayer for Israel, and that is the modern, day, or the modern state of Israel, because there isn't anything about Israel or any nation, for that matter, that would prevent us or exclude us from praying for them. God calls us to pray for all kinds of people, no matter who they are, no matter what they are doing. So that's kind of where we left off that last time. And this week, I want to pick up where we left off and keep answering some of these questions that help us to think biblically about Israel. Now, if you're like me, you were raised with a deep spiritual allegiance to the modern state of Israel uh, because it has, for many evangelicals, become synonymous with the Israel of the Bible. Okay, When we think of the Bible Israel and the, the Israel that is now in the Middle East, we think those are one and the same thing. But I want to reiterate that the modern state of Israel is not the same Israel that you read about in the, New, or in the Old Testament. There was a gap for a long, long time when Israel wasn't even a nation. And I realize that that statement, uh, just in and of itself, might leave you with many questions. And I opened this up on Facebook, just so you know. Uh, if you can go to our church webpage, uh, I asked you all, if there were any questions that I haven't answered, uh, please ask me. If there's something rolling around in your mind of, what are you going to say about this? Uh, how does this tie into that? Please ask those. I would love to address those in the sermon or um, in a private direct message. But I opened it up on Facebook because there's many questions that we have as we start to think about this. Like, what about all those promises given to Israel in the Old Testament? How do we think about this? What are we to do with those promises? Has the word of God failed in fulfilling the promises of God? Since all, most of the Jews at least, reject the Messiah, does that mean that Israel as a nation was unsuccessful? That it failed, right? Where God's plan A was Israel and it failed and the church is somehow plan B. Unfortunately, I believe this is actually how some people view Christianity, as the church is kind of being plan B, or that God may has may have two separate people. He has Israel over here that he saves one way, and then he has the church over here that he saves another way. But this isn't really the scriptural teaching 
the scriptural teaching is that there's no longer the Jew and Gentile distinction. There is one in Christ Jesus. Right? We don't talk about circumcision or uncircumcision anymore. We talk about the oneness of Jesus Christ and how it, it's not about what nation you're from. It's all one in Jesus. Now, I have good news for you. If you're feeling like there's all these questions rolling around, these questions are the same ones that you're asking that, that I kind of probed about. If, if you're feeling like these questions need answered, you're actually on track to follow Paul's line of thinking here in Romans 9. If you would, turn to your Bibles. Romans 9. We're going to look at verses 1 through 8. Church, hear the word of the Lord this morning. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption. The glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. The word of God for his people. Let's pray. Father, we come to your holy, inspired, and inerrant word today receiving it as sufficient for what we need in doctrine and practice, receiving it as your fresh word to us today that is living, that is active, that is sharper than any two-edged sword. And Lord, we ask that as this word is preached, as we open up our Bibles today, we pray that you would pierce our souls down to the division of bone and marrow, soul and spirit, that you might permeate our innermost parts to speak clearly by your Holy Spirit's inspiration to show us what your word means. That's what we seek today. We want to humbly sit at your feet and say, Jesus, we want answers. We want to know how to think about this. We want to uh, receive your inspired word about how to think Christianly about the things that we see around us. So Lord, we come to you today with humility. We come to you with reverence, asking that you would speak clearly to the preaching of your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I wanted to use this passage in Romans 9 as a kind of starting point to move back into our discussion that we began last week. And this passage does three things for us that I can see. First, it resurfaces the question of Israel. Okay? It gets us talking about Israel again. Uh, second, it answers some of the ponderings uh, that many of you probably have about how the New Testament addresses those questions. Maybe some of the things that you were wondering in your mind have already been answered for you just as we read the Bible. And third... This gives us language for talking about Israel apart from just an ethnic perspective. Okay, and that's what we really want to hone in on today. It is this third uh, thing that I want to pay special attention to. Notice that in verse 6 through 8, it has this peculiar language of not taking the identity of something from which it came. 
not taking the identity from something which from which it came. It says, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. It says in verse 7, not all are children of Abraham just because they're his offspring. In verse 8, it says, it is not the children of the flesh. It's talking about Jews, the those who are circumcised, who are people that are descended from Abraham. It is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. So already you can see there, there's a bit of um, impute, imputed identity. They're counted as offspring. And what this is saying is that Israel, rightly understood, is a spiritual concept. Israel, rightly understood, is a spiritual concept. It's not just an ethnic racial thing. It is a spiritual concept. As we move to the New Testament, this is the way that the, that the authors of the New Testament speak about Israel. It's a spiritual concept. So being a, a child of Abraham is not automatic by ethnic descent. Okay? Jesus and uh, John the Baptist, they, they challenge this notion often in their ministry with the Pharisees. It means, according to Scripture, that unbelieving Jews are not the children of God. Now, this may be news to some of you and actually step on toes a little bit, but verse 8 couldn't be more clear on this fact, that if you don't believe in Jesus, that you are not part of the children of God. So, then the question is, who is a child of God? Okay? Who is a true offspring of Abraham? Who is Israel? Okay. Now, you know the answer to this. If you were here last week, I, I beat the dead horse, and I'm going to continue to beat the dead horse. But I'm going to show you that those who are the children of God, the offspring of Abraham and Israel, are those who believe. Okay, Those who, by faith, are united to Jesus Christ. But I would like to, to move to some more verses that we haven't looked at yet. I know it's going to look like we've already looked at them, but we haven't yet. Uh, so I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to Galatians 6, 15 through 16. Galatians 6, 15 through 16. And as you start to read this and you hear me reading it, you're going to say, I thought we already read this passage. And we haven't. It just sounds like it because Paul says so many times in the New Testament when he's writing about this idea, he says this thing over and over and over again so that it seems that we're repeating this one idea that Paul has in this one verse, but it's actually just all over the New Testament. It says in Galatians 6, 15 through 16, For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation, a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon, catch this, the Israel of God. The Israel of God. Now, who do you think the Israel of God is here in this passage? Is Paul saying peace and mercy be upon uh, them who walk by this rule and the modern day state of Israel? Is that what Paul has in mind? Well, of course he doesn't have this in mind because that's 1,900 years after Paul is writing this. But, but even aside from that, do you think that he was even talking about the ethnic Jews of his day who some might call Israel? This is what we really need to wrestle with. Was Paul talking about Jews when he said the Israel of God there? When he's speaking to a Gentile Galatian church who are, is struggling with uh, being pressured by the Judaizers to do Jewish things, to live like the Judaizers, right? These are Gentiles. No, Paul was actually talking to a Gentile church and calls them, the Gentiles, Israel of God. He was talking about those who've been made a new creation in baptism and are no longer pulling an identity from ethnic descent, right? Not 
circumcised or not or circumcised. It doesn't matter which one you are. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile. You are one in Christ Jesus. In Jesus, something new is happening. You're a new creation in baptism, and you're no longer pulling an identity from your ethnic descent. You are re-identified with Christ. You are a Christian. Right? Something new has happened in Christ Jesus. So the New Testament, it gives us language a bit for being able to speak to this somewhat confusing phenomenon where a group of people are still claiming a name that isn't rightly theirs. That's what was really happening in the New Testament. Jesus says in Revelation, as we looked at last week, he, he makes an accusation to some of the Jews as he's speaking to the seven churches, and he says, those who call themselves Jews but are not. And what does he say they are? He says that they are actually a synagogue of Satan, which is really strong language, but that's just the way that the New Testament speaks about people who are claiming a name that isn't rightly theirs because they are not aligning with who that is. Right? That's why we have this cutting off language where you're no longer aligned with where you came from. You started from Israel, but not all who descend from Israel are Israel. You may have come from Abraham, but just because you come from Abraham doesn't mean you are attached to Abraham. You might be a children of the flesh and have the same racial connection, but that doesn't mean that you are counted as the offspring who are counted as the offspring, those who are of the promise. Okay, So you see the New Testament views the church not as a replacement of Israel, as is sometimes accused of people who hold this view. It's not, the church is not a replacement of Israel. It's not even a parallel people of God with Israel. Okay? It is the fulfillment of Israel itself, okay? where, the, where the two are brought together, where Jews and Gentiles are together in one. They have grown together in the vine that is Christ. And this is how Scripture can say such things as, not all who descended from Israel are Israel. And peace be upon the Israel of God, meaning the church, meaning Gentiles. So there's this idea of where there's this concept, this spiritual concept of Israel where some of the people haven't believed, and because of that, they've been cut off. But also there's been a people who didn't even descend from there can claim the name Israel of God and be grafted into where they are the Israel of God. So let's keep probing the issues. Uh, how exactly does the church fulfill Israel? That's what we need to answer. How does the church fulfill Israel? Israel. How does it make any sense to start calling the church the Israel of God when we are, let's be honest, we're super Gentile? Okay? We are very, very Gentile. We, we aren't barbarians. We aren't Scythians. We aren't Galatians, Colossians, or any of the New Testament groups of people who were the Gentiles who are mentioned as coming into the church. We are Americans, right? We are very much American. From an American identity, we are a modern day uh, concept far removed from the Middle Eastern Jews. How can we as a church? And I'll make this claim. How can we as a church make the claim that we are even uh, more rightly to claim the name Israel than the Jewish Middle Eastern state? How, how can I say we as the church are more Israel than the people who have the country named Israel? I'll tell you how. The scripture says by faith. By faith, that's how. We place our faith absolutely in Israel, but Israel rightly understood and fulfilled in Jesus, okay? where Jesus becomes for us the true understanding of Israel. Now, let me show you how Jesus fulfills this spiritual concept of Israel. I, I want turn your, to turn your attention now to an Old Testament book. If you would turn in your Bibles to Hosea chapter 11, I want to show you something that was and still is very cool to me. Uh, I'll just be honest. When I, when I came across this uh, passage and this inter interpretation and how to read the Bible, 
this really blew my mind. So turn with me to Hosea chapter 11. And as you're turning there, I'll just kind of give you a little background because we're just going to read one verse in Hosea. But Hosea is a book about a prophet named, you guessed it, Hosea, who was called to marry a whore named Gomer. And in the story, Hosea represents God uh, in the prophecies. And Gomer is unfaithful Israel who keeps whoring after other gods. But uh, uh, Hosea keeps loving her, keeps coming back to Gomer over and over and over. So throughout the book, the point is that, is that God is faithful even when we are not. He comes to us and he makes a way for us in our salvation. But there's something that you might miss if you were to interpret Israel in this passage from a purely Jewish understanding. Okay, Look with me at Hosea 11.1. 1. I just want to look at that first verse there. It says this, When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt I called my son. I'm just going to stop there. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt I called my son. Now if I were to ask you, who is Israel here? Interpret this passage for me. You, you would probably interpret this uh, with a quite literal uh, reading and say that he's talking about the Hebrew people, the Hebrew people who were enslaved in Egypt, right? Because that, that was a place they were enslaved in Egypt to Pharaoh. Think, you think back to the Exodus. Um, you would think it was an ethnic, it was the ethnic descendants of Abraham that he's talking about. Why would you say that? Well, because when Israel uh, was a child, I loved him is what it says. So you're probably thinking about how Israel was very young at this point, okay? At the Exodus, that was early in Israel's history, so that's why it says child. And the Egyptian slavery would have been even before the giving of the law at Mount Sinai through Moses. So that's why it says child. And in Israel is called son because ethnically Abraham was their father, right? They could trace their lineage back to say, well, Abraham, he was our great, 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 however many greats grandfather. That's why it says, Israel was a child, I loved him. Out of Egypt, I called my son. They're ethnically descended from Israel. Now, it sounds right, doesn't it? That sounds like what the interpretation should be. Well, this is an uninspired Jewish interpretation. Let me show you an inspired Christian one as you turn with me to Matthew 2, verses 13 through 15. Matthew 2, verses 13 through 15. I say this is the inspired uh, interpretation because this is how the apostles uh, exegete. This is how the apostles interpret this Old Testament passage. Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 15 says this. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Who, which Joseph is this? He's talking about Joseph and Mary, right? Appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise, take the child. Who's that? That's Jesus. Take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. Here's the part I really want you to catch. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. A couple things you need to notice says this was to fulfill. So this is a fulfillment. This is an interpretation here of something. It says, spoken by the prophet. You should be asking what prophet, okay? Because what it says next is in quotes, out of Egypt I called my son. This is Matthew quoting an Old Testament prophet. It's quoting the Old Testament prophet, Hosea. And he says, this is the fulfillment of that. Now I want you to pay attention to that language. This was to fulfill. 
Not to replace, not to abolish, but to fulfill. Now, I, I want you to catch how massive that claim is, uh, that Matthew comments kind of just in passing. You've probably read that passage every Christmas. You read through that, and you're like, okay, this is what happened. These are the facts. But you don't recognize how big this is, what Matthew is saying about Jesus, what he's doing here in his life. The apostolic interpretation, Matthew, was that. The apostolic inter interpretation of Jesus is that he fulfills the life of Israel in his personhood. Jesus fulfills who Israel is. Matthew isn't just saying that Jesus uh, did something similar to Israel at one point in his life, and there's just a little bit of overlap, and this little instance fulfills that. That's not what Matthew's saying. He's making a claim that Jesus fulfills the sonship role of Israel. That is a massive claim. What Jesus does, he does on behalf of Israel, God's true son. Right? That's who Jesus is in the truest sense. He is God's son. So that when he says he came not to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them, what it means is that he has perfectly kept every single point of the law, and his life is the total fulfillment of everything written in the law and the prophets. Okay? Jesus fulfills that. So if you're wondering if it mattered that Jesus was a Jew, we kind of talked about that last week, where that person said uh, Jesus was a Jew, he wasn't a Christian. He wasn't just a Jew, he was the Jew. He was the epitome of what a Jew should be. He was the epitome of what Israel was. He had to be born under the law as a Jew in order to fulfill the law for us and the Jews, for anyone who would believe. Jesus had to fulfill that. Galatians 4, 4 through 5 says it this way. But when the fullness of time had come, I want you to think about that language. When the fullness of time had come, think fullest, think fulfillment, okay? When the fulfillment or the, the, the uh, fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, so Jesus, he's human, born under the law, he's a Jew, to redeem those who were under the law, those who were Israelites, so that we might receive adoption, wait, those are people on the outside, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Okay, Think about that concept of adoption, taking the name and identity of something from which you did not come from. Okay, this is kind of the reverse of what we were talking about with Israel a moment ago. This is what happens with us as Gentiles who believe. We are adopted. We are grafted into the vine who is Christ. And then we can say, we are Israel by adoption. Okay? We have been grafted into Christ, the covenantal vine. We are Israel only through Jesus Christ, who is Israel rightly understood. So the, the point Paul is making there in Galatians is that Jesus couldn't have just been a random person, a Gentile from without. He had to be a Jew. Uh, he couldn't just be someone who was on the outside and then somehow fulfill the law of the Jews, just kind of walking in and say, hey guys, I want to join you. No, he had to come from within. He had to fulfill all that Israel was waiting for. He had to be born a Jew. He, he had to be circumcised as a Jew, and he was. He followed the dietary laws as a Jew. He followed the civil law as a Jew and the religious laws as a Jew and actually gave the authoritative interpretation on the entire law and prophets. Right? As he's doing ministry, the Pharisees, Pharisees are like, what are you doing, Jesus? We do things this way. Don't you know that tra tra tradition says, elders say, and Jesus says, you have heard it said, but I say to you, here's the inspired interpretation. Here's the Christian way of thinking about things. This is what Jesus does. This is what he did through all of his ministry, and he did that for you. He did it for you as 
Gentiles. He did it for people who would call upon his name and be saved for your salvation. That's why Jesus subjected himself to that. He is the truest Israelite that ever lived. And in fact, he fulfilled Israel. And yet, Israel killed him. Right? The, the Jews were the ones that brought Jesus to the cross. And, and in a real sense, we did too. It was our sin that hung him there. So, so I don't want to say well, all the Jews did it. It's all their fault. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that he was the fulfillment of everything everyone had been waiting for. And everyone turned their back on him. Everyone. Okay? And the Jews especially, though, during that time, they used Jewish traditional reading of the law to wrongly accuse him for something that he did not do. Right? Jesus was a perfect Jew, and yet they said, Jewish law says, Jesus, that you are blaspheming. You say you're God. We only have one God. God is one. No Trinitarian language around here. This is what they were doing. And while this is the most unjust act that ever happened in history, it's horrendous as we think about it. It's, it's gross. It's disgusting. It's how can, you, how can you do this? Everything you've been waiting for, you just blew it. That is what this is. And yet, paradoxically, it's good news. It's the best news that I could ever hear, that you could ever hear. It is gospel to us. It is good news because we as Christians now realize what Jesus was doing was accomplishing our salvation. He lived the life of Israel that we could never live whether we were a Jew or not. He lived the life that, that all of us would always fail to live. If we were given a thousand times over to relive our lives, we would blow it. And yet Jesus did it perfectly on the first time. Okay? And, and he died the death that we always deserve. Okay? Jesus died for something that he did not do. And we are told that when we place our faith in him, this unites us to his life. All of it. Think about that. Not just his death, his life to all of it. His perfect righteousness. His perfect obedience. As he lived through this Jewish way, as he lived under the law, he perfectly fulfilled the law. He is as righteous as you can be in every sense of the word. That is what we get when we believe in Jesus. We get that part of his life. We also get his sacrificial death. right? His obedience all the way to the cross where he died the death in our place that he did not deserve. He did that for us. He also raised from the dead. We are united to his resurrection life, okay? Not just his life, not just his death, but even his resurrection. His entire life is ours when we place our faith in him. This is the gospel. I could go on and on about the beauty of it, but the point I want you to get here is that Jesus is Israel. And when you place your faith in Jesus as Israel, we can be said to be the Israel of God too. This is how Paul can say that in Galatians. And he's not faking it. He's not just making some stuff up. This is the reality of the church, that when we place our faith in Israel, we are placing our faith in Jesus. And to be in Christ, you hear this all through the New Testament, to be in Christ means to be in Israel. Isn't that amazing to think about? To be in Christ means to be in Israel. Now, if you would look one last time in Galatians uh, to drive this point home, I want you to turn to Galatians 3, 16 through 18 to help us think even more clearly in our mind, how can we say that we as a collective people are Israel? Galatians 3, 16 through 18 says this. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. 
This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by the promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Now, if you can't tell, the book of Galatians talks a lot about this issue. I keep going back to Galatians because Paul wants you to get it through your mind that you are the Israel of God. But I turn here to again point out that the apostolic and inspired interpretation of who the offspring of Abraham is, properly speaking, isn't talking about a group of people. Paul uses really bad grammar to make a point. He says, it doesn't say offsprings. Well, no one would say that because that doesn't make any sense. But he's making a point saying, it doesn't say offsprings, people. It says offspring, referring to who? Christ, which is one person. That's the point that Paul is making. It doesn't refer to a, a group of people. It refers to one single person. And it's talking about the one individual offspring who can be said rightly to be the son of God, the true son of God. There is only one offspring, it says, not offsprings. There is only one son of God, not many. He is the son whom, the God, or whom God loves. He is the offspring promised not just to Abraham, but the offspring even promised all the way back, think of Genesis, to Eve. Right? From your offspring will come one who will crush the serpent's head. Who is he talking about? Who is he talking about? He's talking about Jesus, the one true Israel, is Jesus Christ himself. He is the one that crushes the serpent's head. He is the offspring which blesses the nations. He is it all. He is the fulfillment of all of Israel. And yes, everyone who is in Christ is in Israel. And in that sense, yes, we are the Israel of God. But you are only in Christ and in Israel by faith in who Jesus is. And that is the fulfillment of Israel. All the promises of God, all the law and the prophets, you have to believe that Jesus fulfills that or you are not considered true Israel. You might have descended from Israel, but not all that descend from Israel are, properly speaking, Israel. This is what the New Testament says. Now what this means is that if you're still looking for the fulfillment of Israel, you're missing something. Something very big about the New Testament teaching of Christianity. If Jesus doesn't satisfy your longings for the messianic hope, and you're still waiting for a literal temple to be rebuilt in Jerusalem, if you're still waiting for a modern Jewish high priest to begin ministering in that physical temple, if you're still waiting for him to begin temple sacrifices to take away blood, uh, uh, the, the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins, if you're still waiting for all the law and prophets to be fulfilled, then you haven't taken the messiahship of Jesus as comprehensively as you should. That's what Jesus says. Why, why are we looking and waiting for all of these things to revamp when Jesus says, I come to fulfill it? Tear down the temple, and then what? We'll rebuild a physical one. No, in three days, we will rebuild it. What does that mean? He's talking about the resurrection. He's pointing back to himself to where we see all of life, all of worship, all of our religion goes back to Jesus himself. So my exhortation for you is that you see Jesus as Israel and embrace all the benefits that come with that. 1 Peter 2, 4-10, exhorts you, church, as you come to him, it's talking about Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen, precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. Did you catch that language? A spiritual house. What is that? That's temple language. He's talking about a rebuilding of the temple to be a holy priesthood, he says. He's speaking to the church. 
You are a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. How? Through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word, as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, church, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is the New Testament posture that we should take away from this church, that you are the people of God. It's you. We are the continuing Israel in Christ Jesus. In him we are chosen. In him we are precious. In him we are constituting the spiritual temple, carrying out the holy priesthood, it says, offering sacrifices to God through Jesus. We are even the chosen race. How does that even make sense? Only through Jesus. Because Jesus actually was from the chosen race. We can only be part of the chosen race as Americans, or whatever your race is, you can only be part of the chosen race through Jesus Christ. It says, we are a holy nation. It's not talking about the United States of America, by the way. It's talking about the church. The church is a holy nation in Christ Jesus, a people for his own possession. And only when we glory in this are we rightly proclaiming the full gospel and excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. No, we were not his people at one time. But now we are, since we have received his mercy, since we have received Christ Jesus, we cannot act like we as the church are plan B or somehow second-rate people of God. And then the Jews are up here. They're the really holy people. That's not the way that the New Testament speaks about this. It also doesn't say that we throw the Jews under the bus either. Okay? It doesn't mean that we demean them. It doesn't mean that we, we, we chide them or, or get onto them or, or anything like that. We're going to talk more about this. Okay? But for, for today... I want you to get through your own heart that God loves you as his chosen son. I want you to get through your heart today, not just your mind, that you are the people of God. You are chosen, that you are precious in him, that he prizes you, that you are his holy race. Not them, not anyone else. You, if you believe in Jesus, you are the Israel of God in Christ Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we've opened up your word today, and we ask now that you would help us to uh, be subservient to it, that we would humbly bow at your feet, recognize that you speak to us and you guide us into all truth. Your word is truth. And Lord, we know that your son Jesus, rightly speaking, is the word. So Lord, we pray that we would walk away today with humble hearts, Lord, as we're going to, in the coming sermons, look at Romans 11, um, which reminds us that we as Gentiles should not become prideful and that we shouldn't look down our noses at the Jews, uh, that we too are capable of being cut off. But I pray that you'd prevent us from pride. I pray that as we look at the fact that we are the Israel of God, that you would cause a sense of humility to come over us. I pray that this would give us greater vision and greater 
enlarged hearts to recognize what grace is, the fact that we've been adopted, that we have been placed in your people by your grace, that you've given us the instrument of faith through the ministry of the Holy Spirit so that we can believe and that all the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ Jesus, as your word says. Lord, let us recognize that you are loving us just as you have always loved your people. Lord, I pray that you would continue to speak to us through your word as we keep talking about Israel. I pray that you would lay questions upon our hearts that can be answered well. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be honest about how we're thinking about these things and to think communally about them, to speak about them in the open. Lord, we receive your love today, we receive your mercy, we receive your grace, and we stand humbly at it in awe of what you've done by grafting us as Gentiles and even enabling us to be able to speak about this. We praise you and we thank you, and we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said, we're not done talking about this. I know it can kind of seem like I'm just going to cut it off there. And We are Israel. There's more to be said. Um, I, I want to talk about um, the fact that uh, Romans 11 seems to still speak about Israel and the Jews as, as a people somehow evoking jealousy. Uh, the, the Gentiles somehow evoke jealousy to the Jews to bring them to believe in Jesus. So we're going to talk more about that. We're not done. So if you, if you still have questions, please, please ask. I, I want to be... Uh, thinking about this together as a church. I don't want someone uh, to be uh, having their own opinion out in the this this uh, way over here, or this way over there, and saying, well, I think this. And no, I'd like to think together about this, so I'd like to think openly about it. So please come to me with questions. If you think I'm just crazy and out of my mind, tell me. I would love to hear that. Uh, I already know that partially. My, my wife tells me that all the time. Just kidding. Um, okay, let's